Are you ready? We've got, as always, significant work to do because we think that, that in these pages is life itself as well. So we need to dig into it and understand it and not just have a surface-level understanding of the Scriptures. So we dig in at Sedaris. Uh, we think there's so much meaning in them, and you could read the same passage over and over again and learn something new every time because we think this Word is alive. It's one of the most amazing things about this book is that for some reason, even it's been 2,000 years of studying it, there's always something that comes alive when you read it. And so something came alive for me this week as I read it. I hope as you're reading along with us, it came alive. Maybe it'll come alive this morning. So we're going to be here... Um, And we're going to ask the question, how not to debate the true identity of Jesus? And so we're going to look at some great arguments that that are captured for us here about when we're trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? He claimed things about himself. Was he a, a liar? Was he crazy? Or was he actually, in fact, who he said he was? And so there's some great arguments that Jesus makes of himself that others will make of him in this long passage we'll look at today. And then there's some terrible arguments. Like this is not the way to debate anything or any person or any claim. So we're going to look at those. And then we'll, we'll finish with the, what I think is the greatest argument for the true identity of Jesus and how we as the people of God, and I know not all of us are, consider ourselves a follower of Jesus yet or, or part of the people of God, and that's okay. We... Uh, we'll talk about the newcomers class. That's one of the huge reasons why we're here in the city to give people a chance to ask these questions and hopefully with good arguments and not bad ones as you're trying to wrestle with who is Jesus. And so we'll look at what I think is the greatest argument, which I call the river of crumbs. Ooh, teaser. Now you're going to stick around. Okay, so um, John's big point in this passage, so the author of the Gospel of John, he's trying to show us some things that maybe the other three Gospels or the other Three biographies maybe failed to illuminate, so he's written a fourth gospel like two decades after, because he was the last of the disciples of Jesus, who then they started to call the apostles. He was the last to die, but he was an eyewitness. He saw Jesus' miracles, his life, his teaching. He saw Jesus die on the cross, and then he met him and ate with him after the third day. And so he saw the resurrection, and then he was there for the ascension as Jesus went to be with the Father, and he said, I must go that I might send my spirit, and then the Jesus movement began, and John got to see all of that, and he got to write a few other letters. He wrote the book of Revelation, which we'll quote, quote today. That's the last book of your Bible, this vision of the future. And then he also decided then at the very end of his life to, to, to write an account of all that he saw Jesus do, and he d- does it in his own unique way. And I think the point he's trying to make in this passage is that the Jewish leaders, and we'll see the crowds, the masses, did not have good reasons For rejecting the claims that Jesus made about himself. What he'll say is what Jesus was doing and showing about himself made it so clear that when these Jewish leaders, these religious authorities, so these would have been, uh, because back then it was, you know, the, the civil and the religious were mixed together. So it'd be like the mayor and the city council were also like the leaders of the religious community. When they rejected Jesus, that their rejection was purposeful. It wasn't done in the dark. They weren't just naive. They knew exactly what they were rejecting. And the question is, do we know exactly what we're rejecting? 
if we reject Jesus. Okay, so I think that's what this passage is going to help us see that. So we have to look at the arguments that are made by both sides and ask, are they good arguments or bad arguments, and what makes them good, what makes them bad? And I really do believe that, that for those of us who maybe like living on the fence when it comes to Jesus, this could be our sermon. This could be a word to you from the Lord. You've got to make a decision. It's not good for you to live and stay on the fence about Jesus. If you want to move towards outright rejecting him, that's okay. That's your prerogative. But we can be intellectually honest. We can look at the evidence. And we can get off the fence. No more willful agnosticism is what I want to say. Let's see the four verbal exchanges that, that, that help us come to making a decision. You ready? There's four kind of verbal exchanges, or you could say four debates that are happening in this passage. So chapter 7, verses 14 to 52, if you turn there with me. John 7, 14 to 52. So if you've got one of these black Bibles in the seat back in front of you, uh, just as a little cheat sheet, it's going to be on page 9. 49, 949, or 940, 48, okay? We ready? We're going to have to move fast, because we've got three songs at the end of this sermon, and I want to get to all three of them, because they're good, okay? Yeah, I, what? Huh, I know that voice. Whose voice is that? Okay. So here we go. You ready? First exchange. Okay, remember, we're in the same scene as we were last week, which is Jesus had just fed 5,000, and then so many people wanted to follow him, and some wanted to make him king, and put the army together, and take over power, and Jesus said, that's not what I came to do, and so he made it weird, right? And he said, you got to eat my body and drink my blood, and he's talking about this, this, uh, this ceremony that he's going to institute right before he dies, but nobody knows that, and so many of his disciples leave, and then his brothers, his biological brothers, half-brothers, come to him, and and, and they kind of start making fun of him and say, why don't you, if, if you are who you say you are, bro, why don't you just go reveal yourself at this big festival that's happening, one of three main Jewish festivals that would happen every year in Jerusalem, and people would make a pilgrimage, and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Festival of Tents, and people would go there, and they'd build their uh, tents, and they'd stay there for a whole week, and they'd celebrate and sing, and they'd remember that God is a God of provision. He, he's a God who has given them everything they needed when they were in the wilderness, wandering for 40 years. And so they celebrate that in the fall. And uh, that, that's still celebrated today. It's the, the Feast of Sukkot in the Jewish tradition. And that's about to happen at the end of September, early October. So it's like a festival, uh, it's like, a, like, a, like a harvest festival of sorts, remembering that God is our provider. And so, so his brothers tell him, go up there, reveal yourself. And Jesus says, it's not my time. He says, there's time for everything. It's not my time. And then what we see in the text is that Jesus secretly goes up there even after having his brothers go without him. And he goes up about halfway through the festival. And then he goes into the temple on the last day of the festival, the crescendo of the festival. And he kind of makes some trouble. And he starts teaching and preaching as he always does. And... and the religious leaders are going to come and try to stop him from doing that. The crowd's going to, they've heard about him. They've heard these stories of all the miracles he's been doing. 
and, and the way he talks. And so the crowd's wrestling with who is this guy. And, and so that's what we're stepping into here. So same scene as we ended last week. And now we step into this verbal, these verbal exchanges that happen both between Jesus and uh, when you see in John, he says the Jews. He's not talking, about, not talking about all Jewish people. He's talking about the Jewish religious authorities. So like the city council, who is also the church council. And they were all mixed together. And, and so he's always arguing with them because they don't like that he's getting all the attention. Here we go. First verbal exchange. So when the festival, verse 14. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Okay? Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants me to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And there was no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? And Moses was the most revered historical person in, for all of the Jewish people and continues to be to this day. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? And then the crowd chimes in. So the crowd is watching this verbal exchange. And the crowd chime, chimes in and says, verse 20, Well, you have a demon, the crowd responded. Who's trying to kill you? Now, that can be a little bit confusing, but you've got to remember, it goes from uh, these, these insider, the Jewish religious elites, to the crowd, the masses. And what the crowd doesn't know, but Jesus knows, is that the religious leaders are trying to kill him. So when they say, you have a demon, that's just like an idiom to say, you're crazy, Jesus. Nobody's trying to kill you. Who's trying to kill you? Right, that's what they're saying. They're just saying you're crazy. Uh, yeah, and they don't know. He's, he's actually right. The religious leaders are scheming to kill him. So that's what's going on in this ver first verbal exchange. So, so really this debate is about what is the source of Jesus' teaching? By what authority does he teach? And... What I see in this first verbal exchange, I'll kind of try to show what I think are terrible arguments and which ones are great arguments on how to know what the source or the authority is on someone's teaching. The, the first thing I see here is this argument, and I see it elsewhere. Uh, basically, the Jew, it says, then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned? Remember, the Jews means the Jewish authority and leaders. So these are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those with titles. They were amazed, not in the sense of, wow, this is so great, but they were like, they were amazed. They're a bit upset. They said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Really what they're doing here is they're questioning his pedigree. Who is he to speak like this? Who is he to speak so authoritatively? Where did he get his degree? That's what they're saying. He's not even from the Ivy League. How could he speak more authoritatively than us? They were amazed that he would speak like this. Not impressed. They couldn't believe it. What's his degree? Where did he study? Who was his teacher? 
And then Jesus, of course, responds, well, God was my rabbi. God sent me. The Father sent me. And I don't seek my own glory, but only to magnify the teacher of teachers, God himself. What a claim Jesus makes about where he went to school. (laughs) Well, that's a good way to pick a fight. But here's the great argument in it. This is the basic argument. Jesus is very consistent. He said, me and the Father are one. I was sent by the Father. Uh, The Apostle John makes it very clear that Jesus taught, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Jesus claimed to be and was God in the flesh. And when God became man, it is very much the teacher The teacher becoming the teacher, the human teacher, so that we might understand and know God's heart and what he wants of us. And so the great argument goes like this. If that is true, then why would the Messiah, the Holy One sent by God, need a degree from a human institution? Right? Now, Of course, if it's not true, then yes, Jesus is a deceiver, or he's self-deceived, or he's a lunatic, or he has a demon. But if he is who he said he was, then it makes perfect sense. It's, guys, God doesn't need you to train him, that's what Jesus is saying. How can a human institution train God on the way of righteousness, and the way things work, and the way things go? So I hear this same argument all the time today. Uh, Someone might say, well, you know, leading scholars say, or somebody might say, you know, the scientific community is pretty sure that, or now in our strange social media age, it goes something like this, well, you know, my favorite follow doesn't think so. How many subscribers does that Galilean have again? But so, So God is not... What I don't want you to hear me saying is God is sort of against education or something like that. He's not. (laughs) He invented it. And and so he's not anti-education. He's not anti-Ivy League. He's not any of these things. But if Jesus is who he said he was, then how strange and, and, and funny is it that we think that we could teach him something? And that's what these Pharisees and Sadducees, these Jewish leaders thought. Like, well, we're the ones that train people. And he didn't come through our institution, so how can he be trusted? Well, I've been clear with you guys. God sent me. But Jesus is very clear, and I think we need to be very clear, that the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God is not limited by our human-centric attempts to discover the truest truths. To discover those truths apart from revelation. So to think that we, as human beings, could discover the truest things that God has put into the world without God helping us find it is both hilarious and also ignorant and also full of hubris. And this is not new to our age. This is something that's been happening for all of time. Let me just share a couple Sarah, an Old Testament passage where the prophet Isaiah was saying this hundreds of years before Jesus even came on the scene. He was saying this. Isaiah 45, 9 says this. 
Woe to the one who argues with his maker. One clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, What are you making? Or does your work say, He has no hands? And then the Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, who was as educated as you could be, he was the, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he studied under the greatest rabbis, and, and then persecuted Christians, thinking Jesus was a deceiver, thinking Christians were crazy for following this Galilean, and then had an encounter with Jesus, had his mind totally changed, repented, turned, and became the leader of the Jesus movement and took the gospel from Israel to the ends of the earth as they knew him at those times. And one of the places he took it was to Rome itself. And so he's writing a letter now to the Romans who at that time were the most educated, most powerful, most sophisticated of peoples. And in Romans 9.20, he echoes Isaiah and echoes Jesus. And he says this in Romans 9.20. He says, But who are you? A mere man to talk back to God. Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? See the same argument? If Jesus is sent by God, the Holy One of God, the Messiah, the Savior, if He is the Word became flesh, God became flesh, then He doesn't need... (laughs) to be approved by the religious elites to bring the truest truth, the wisest wisdom into the world. He needs to prove that he's actually sent by God. So this uh, argument Jesus makes I call the integrity and congruency argument. Basically, Jesus says you can know the source of a thing by the commonality of that thing to its source. Is there congruency? That's what integrity means. This is, this is pure. So if the fruit comes from a particular tree, it will, not be, it will not be incongruent with the other fruit from the same tree. It's a double negative on purpose, by the way, for you English majors. Sometimes it's harder to know if a thing is congruent rather than know that it's not incongruent. So if there is any corruption in the fruit when compared to the source fruit, then we know that it doesn't come from the same tree. So Jesus says, this is is where his argument, Jesus is funny, it's okay to be funny. But he's being funny out of love. So he says to these religious elites who had memorized the Old Testament, who knew it backwards and forwards, who were supposedly the most righteous, who followed the law of Moses perfectly, which is what it meant to be a good Jew at that time, Jesus says this, didn't Moses give you the law? He's about to make a congruency argument, an integrity argument. You guys know the law, right? He gave you the law. And they're thinking to themselves, yeah, of course he gave us the law. That's why we're so upset. We think you're breaking the law. And Jesus says, okay, if you have the law, then why are you trying to kill me? See what he's doing? You heard of the Ten Commandments. What's one of the ten? Thou shall not murder. 
funny. She's saying, like, you're trying to kill me, yet Moses told you, do not kill an innocent man. He puts it to him. What's it going to be? Are you so sure that if you kill me, you won't actually be living incongruent with the very law given to you by God? So this makes sense of then why the crowd sort of flares up a bit. And they say, who's trying to kill you? Because they don't know that, in fact, the religious leaders are trying to kill him. So they call him crazy. Nobody's trying to kill you. Who? Who? Jesus doesn't out the authorities just yet, but he knows they're conspiring. So this question that Jesus brings upon himself is this. Now, he's not just saying, just trust me. But he is saying, someone is being hypocritical here, and someone is not. Someone is congruent, and someone is incongruent. And he's talking to the crowd now. He's saying, there's the religious authorities here, and there's me as the new authority. And he's putting it to them. And what Jesus is actually doing, and and the Pharisees never do this, which is interesting, Jesus is saying, examine me. Consider my life. If you can find any incongruence in me, anything in me that does not correspond to God the Father as you see him in your scriptures, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, if you find anything that's out of alignment, then you'll have your answer. And yes, I'm worthy to be killed as a blasphemer. If not, perhaps someone else that you've learned to trust is leading you astray. Jesus has no problem with us examining him. He didn't back then and he doesn't today. He is quite confident that when you look closely, when you search deeply, you will not find any lack of integrity but actually you'll realize this is the source of all good all truth and the way to life that's his claim so what say you do Jesus and his words match up does his life reflect the life that you might expect if the all-wise, totally beautiful God became man and lived among us. If you knew the Old Testament so well, and then you saw Jesus, would you say that's the same God? These are good questions to ask, and not always easy, which is why it's best, we think, to consider in community these sorts of questions. So, Open yourself up to that possibility. Open yourself up to the fact that Jesus has asked you to do this. Open yourself up to the fact that Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. So here's a question, and here's a final application and question on this first verbal exchange. If you find yourself on the fence or... or living in unbelief, are all your defenses for that unbelief 
or that agnosticism, are they footnoted by some scholar of great repute or some thinker that you respect or some influencer that has asserted this to be the case or this is how I think? Or are your defenses or your agnosticism rooted in your own experience of this so-called truth which is under dispute? It's a great question to ask. You could ask it this way. Which of the things that Jesus said or taught do you know are untrue based upon your own experience with them? Or are you just relying on the research and opinions of other more educated people than yourself? Now, one of the main reasons I continue to follow Jesus and have great assurance that he is the truth incarnate, that he is who he said he was, is that I have experimented with the things Jesus encourages us to do. I have tried to follow the commands he has given. And I mean really tried over an extended time. And strangely, what I've discovered is that real life flows from following him. Thinking about life and doing life the way he thought about life and did life and encouraged us to do it. And that real life seems to be the kind of life that I would imagine God, if there is a God, would want me to experience. And like, it seems like every time I do that, for an extended period of time, I try to live the Jesus way, life blossoms. Now, of course, and it's fair, it's okay to, if you're thinking this, you could say, well, that's all coincidence, or that's the placebo effect. You want it to be true, and so you psychologically make yourself think life is better when you're doing it this way. That might be true. The problem is, my life's been like this. And I've been doing it for a very long time, and, and you can talk to others who have been doing it longer than me. And it seems to also have the opposite effect if I don't do it Jesus' way. The other side of the coin also seems to be true. Each and every season in which I try to do it on my own terms or in my own way or follow my own desires, it does seem to lead to a more depressed kind of life, a more despairing kind of life. I experience more physical fatigue, etc., etc., etc. And so I've experimented. Have you? What's your best argument for the identity of Jesus? A, a smart guy once told me that, dot, 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 or B, I've tasted for myself, and it seems to me both are acts of faith. Okay, that was verbal exchange one, believe it or not. The rest go a bit quicker. Famous last words. Exchange number two, let's read it. 720 to 24. Okay, so I'm going to, there's a little transition when the crowd says, you're crazy, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? The crowd says. Jesus responds, verse 21. I performed one work, and you are all amazed, Jesus answered. 
Okay, let me just pause there. If you haven't been with us, what is he talking about? He's talking about, earlier in John's Gospel, John talks about a time that on the Sabbath, which is one of the most important commands, it's one of the Ten Commandments, on the Sabbath, Jesus chooses to heal a man who has been lame for the vast majority of his life. He's, been, he's a beggar. He's, he's living um, the beggar's life, and he hasn't been able to walk. And Jesus heals him completely, and he's able to walk. And Jesus gets in trouble for that. That's what he says, that one thing I did, and you guys are amazed. Again, amazed is not impressed. Amazed is like, how could Jesus heal on the Sabbath? They're upset. And that's what he's referring to here. So I just want to bring you into the context. Then Jesus continues. He says, this is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Okay. So, that incident where Jesus heals and they get all upset because he's broken the law... And this becomes sort of common knowledge at that point, that that's part of the rub with Jesus, is he seems to be a little loose with the Sabbath. Like he seems to do things like heal people when we're supposed to be resting. And so they make the charge, how could this man be from God if he's breaking God's law? So Jesus will use this common knowledge to make this point. He'll, he'll, he'll say something like this. If someone was from God, wouldn't it make more sense that this someone should look to and be all about the transcendent outcomes that God as the transcendent life giver would care about rather than the particular, I'll call it teetotaling, religious type of man-made religious re- restriction? Would God, if he exists, care more about you not lifting a finger on the Sabbath, or would God care more about bringing healing and fullness into his world? It's a basic argument. I think it's a good one. And to prove his point, Jesus will use an example. And he'll use an example which he knows the Jewish authorities can't deny. And his example is this. He says, there's a loophole that you guys lean into all the time. Because the law clearly states that a baby boy born into a Jewish family is to be circumcised on the eighth day of his life. And we know that this is a beautiful, transcendent declaration That this newborn life is a full participant in the family of God's people, which is the family of Israel. And it's an amazing, beautiful thing. It's a life-affirming reality. But what happens when that eighth day lands on the Sabbath? It probably happened quite often because it's like a one in seven chance. (laughs) God doesn't seem to be aware of this. And so he keeps bringing babies into the world like 
where eight days from now it'll be the Sabbath. And so we've got to figure out, okay, what do we do here? Do we break the Sabbath? We call the doctors in? Or do we, do we break this other law? What do we do? It's a conundrum. And so they've clearly used this principle that there are some things that are more important or more transcendent that reflect the life God wants to give rather than just following this very strict religious set of rules. And so they, of course, make the obvious choice that everyone can see is obvious that, well, we'll just do the ceremony on the Sabbath, the circumcision ceremony. It's, it's great. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that makes total sense. That's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> the virtue-minded people of the world can see the logic And Jesus is trying to make that abundantly clear. Are you going to miss out on the transcendent thing happening right in front of you just so that you can keep the particular details of these important but not transcendent religious laws that you've created? So what I, in my notes, have sort of categorized this as the terrible argument, or bad arguments often argue from the transcendent to the particular. So God is a lawgiver and he's given laws and therefore he would never want us to break this particular law. Or Jesus seems to argue the other way around. He's saying, let's look at a particular situation and see what's the transcendent truth that's at work here. Let's not lose the transcendent just for the particular. Whereas the bad argument goes, let's lose the transcendent to keep the particular. Now, one is very human-centric, because humans are very particular. They're very specific. They only live for a little bit of time, and so I want to make myself feel good, look righteous, seek glory for myself. Where Jesus says, no, seek the glory of the Father and His transcendent goodness, which is a transcendence of life and love. And we see that in the bending of the law to allow circumcision on, the eighth, on, on a Sabbath day because it's more transcendent to see God bringing people into his family, bringing life and fullness and protection and all the, all the beautiful things in that ceremony. Okay, so this is, this, I might lose you, so just stick with me, okay? So how do we see this today? Because we don't live in Israel 2,000 years ago. Our dominant sort of religious ideas are not... Jewish ideas. They're not the Mosaic law. So how, how, how does this translate? How do we come back down and see how this plays in our society? And it's going to feel kind of backwards or paradoxical in a way, so just stick with me. So my application is this. I sometimes hear it said, how could Jesus be truly loving if he forbids dot, dot, dot? Okay, so paradoxically, you might have things come into your mind that do feel like we're giving the particular power over the transcendent, okay? But I actually think if we were to take Jesus out for coffee and ask him the same question, he'd say just the opposite. Because our society, our current culture, has taken a very narrow or particular thing and elevated it to an ultimate thing or a transcendent thing, 
we make that same very big cosmic mistake of thinking that the meaning of life is found in this very particular thing. And we're convinced of it. And Jesus would, in his great mercy and grace, rid, of, rid us of this type of thinking. And it's harder to see, because unlike, as I said, in our day, the dominant worldview is not the Old Testament Mosaic Law, but some other worldview. So I was trying to think, well, what is that dominant thing? And I think in our time, you could, you could say something like this. The sort of religion of our day is this human-centric, individualistic, hedonistic mindset. Hedonistic just means seeking pleasure and happiness above all else. And that our personal freedom is to do whatever we desire, and that is the highest law. So anything that comes against that law feels to us like this great offense against our religious inclinations, which is ultimate autonomy and pleasure and happiness. And it's sort of baked even into the Constitution of America, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so when we come up against that law, it feels like, I think what it would probably feel like if somebody broke the Sabbath back in the day. Does that, you, you feeling that? So Jesus coming into our culture would actually come in and say, hey, I might tell you not to do this, but don't worry, that's a particular because I actually want you to have the transcendent. And we're going to feel like, you're, you're coming after the Sabbath. This is the most sacred thing to us. And, you're, and you're, you're challenging that? You couldn't be who you say you are. You couldn't be from God because clearly God would want us to keep this thing, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness above all else. Jesus would say, no, that's not my Father's law. That's your law. Our law says, don't let anyone tell you how to live or what you should do with your stuff. And stuff equals your body, your money, your decisions. And I think Jesus would say, if you attempt to keep that law above all else, you'll miss out on this other thing that I'm offering to you, which is eternal life. Eternal joy, eternal happiness, and not just temporary pleasure. Which argument's better? When you give up some particular vehicle for happiness or pleasure to accept Jesus' offer for transcendent life and joy and peace. I've experienced it. On the other side of it, it doesn't feel like he's trying to take anything from us. It feels like he's trying to to heal a lame man who's never really walked and now can walk. But you took away that... No. I gave him everything he needs. Verbal exchange number three. Read with me chapter 7, verse 25. This this is a bit longer one. I've kind of lumped a couple in here. Okay, so Jesus has just said, Stop judging according to outward appearances, but rather judge according to the righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying... Isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? So now they, 
They get it. Yeah, some people are trying to kill him. Yet look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Nobody's challenging him. Can it be true, they think, that the authorities know that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he comes from. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me, and you know where I am from. Yet I have not come on my own, but, I, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Then they tried to seize him. Yet one, no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Referred to last week's sermon. His time was not yet. And the time here he's speaking out his time to die for the sins of the world. However, verse 31, many from the crowds believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done. Will he? It's a good argument. The Pharisees heard this. This is the Jewish leaders. The Jews heard this. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. So this is just sort of like the religious police. Go arrest this guy. We've got to get him off the stage. He's, he's starting to convince people that he is who he says he is. Then Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time. When I'm going, uh, then I'm going to the one who sent me. He said, I'm going to go back into heaven to the Father. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, of course, nobody knows what he's talking about yet because this hasn't happened. John knows because he's witnessed all this. Then the Jews said to one another, where, where does he intend to go so we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Jews, that's, so that's the, in the rest of the Roman world, or sorry, uh, dispersed among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Strange saying. Verse 37. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, oh, as the scriptures have said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who he'll teach about later. But John's giving us this little editorial note. He's speaking about the Spirit. So those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified or ascended to heaven. Okay, so when some of the crowd heard these things, they said, this truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. Now, prophet and Messiah were two different people the, old, the, old, uh, the, the, the Israelites were waiting for. Jesus actually fulfills both. He is the prophet and the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Okay. So the nature of Jesus' origin is, is sort of a part of this, la this third exchange. And the argument, <laughs> what I think is a terrible argument, goes like this. If, you, if we know a person and know where they're from and know where they're born, how can that person be special, right? I know too much about them. I've met people from Galilee. <laughs> I know what they're like. They're not that special. So this is a form of what's known as a scarecrow argument. I'm going to build up in my mind what 
Jesus couldn't be all these things he claims to be. He's just like one of us. And for the people that lived kind of in an urban center of Jerusalem, they're like, and he's not even like us. He's not as smart as us. He comes from that farming town of Galilee. So I'm building up this argument in my mind just so I can tear down and defeat all these claims of Jesus. And I think the main way that we do this today, because we don't have anything against people from Galilee or Nazareth, but the way we do it with Jesus now is the fact that Jesus was a man. So he was a real human being, and we're real human beings. And so we, we think to ourselves, how could that be, how could a human being be able to save all human beings? And so in the history of the church, you have all sorts of uh, heresies that have bubbled up over the ages because people struggle with this. Like, how could he be a man and save us? Because, like, we know what it's like to be human, and and we know we're not good at saving anyone. And and how could his death afford all of our deaths? And so the heresies have have bubbled up that, that say, oh, Jesus was just appearing to be a man, but he was actually just sort of a spirit because he was divine. Now, I can't go into the fullness of it here, but the Bible clearly teaches this doctrine that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. So he has two natures in one, fully man and fully God living, but he is fully man. He's not just pretending to be a man. He, he lived a life as a man. He knows what it's like to be a human being, and that's what makes him the great high priest, like we said last week. But we struggle with that, and so we wonder, how could we follow him, just a, just a human being? Well, my answer to that is, it doesn't matter how we think we'd do it, or what we think is best, this is what God did, and then we respond to it. And God chose to send his son and become fully human, to live a human life like we've lived a human life and to die a human death so that we might experience salvation. And you might say, well, how do we know that's true? Again, look at verbal exchange number one. They all work together. It doesn't make sense to us just on the face, but it makes sense to us in that We can't deny it simply because we don't understand it. So here's, so that's the argument. He's just a human, or he's just from Galilee. How could he be the Messiah? That's one argument. I think a great argument is what some of the crowd says in verse 31. What do they say? Let's read it. Verse 31. They say this. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, why did they believe in him? Because they were saying, they were thinking, when the Messiah actually comes... He won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? Than this human being. So whatever we think the Messiah will be, or the Savior could be, could he do more miracles and signs than Jesus? So this is an evidence-based argument. And you notice, the Pharisees don't say, well, he didn't do those things, he's just making them up. They can't deny what's happening, so they don't deny it. They have to go to other types of arguments. Well, he's from Galilee, or he hasn't been to our institutions, or da-da-da-da-da. But this group within the crowd says, wait a minute. Could anybody really do more than he's done? 
Like, what are we waiting for? Like, what are we, what are we thinking would happen? That it's been predicted. So which argument is better? Evidence-based argument or a scarecrow argument of, he's from Galilee. He's just like a human being like us. Have you properly wrestled with the signs and wonders of Jesus? The religious authorities never denied these, th- these were real, just that they'd happened and they couldn't explain them. Do you have a good argument behind what exactly is behind the miracles? Okay. Final verbal exchange. 745 to 52. It goes like this. Then the servants, remember, the Pharisees had sent out their servants to go arrest Jesus. Their servants came back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, well, why didn't you bring him in? The servants answered, no man has ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Have any of us believed in him? And you servants, you think you know better than us? That's their argument. But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. So then they attack the crowd. They say, are, are you fooled too? Well, those in the crowd who, who, who have looked at the evidence and wrestled with the signs and wonders and said, could the Messiah do more than this? Well, they're accursed. They're going to hell. Don't be like them. Then Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus from chapter 3, who was also part of this ruling council, he was a Pharisee himself, he said, hey guys, hold on, the one who came, uh, this is Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus previously, said this, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? So Nicodemus is like the voice of reason, and look at what they say to him, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? It's like, whoa. They replied, investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Crazy. I think that's pretty bad debate, bad argumentation. The first thing they do is they say to these servants, well, all of us think this. This is sort of the majority rules tactic to debating. Well, you know, and you, we use statistics for this. Well, you know, this percentage of this many people believe this, so that must be true. That's what they're doing. Then they use the shaming tactic. Have you been fooled? Are you weak of mind? Are you prone to deception too? So they're just like shaming and going after embarrassment to the servants and then to the crowd they say you're accursed so they use scare tactics they say we're the ones that determine righteousness and unrighteousness and we think you're accursed you better come to our side all of these i think are pretty bad reasons not to believe in jesus and nicodemus says that he says i think we should hear him out like what if he is actually who he says he is we can't let that, that seed of doubt get in, they say. You must be from Galilee, too. 
You must be a homer. You must just be saying that because you knew him as a kid or something. I don't think that's a good argument. You know what I think is a good argument? Look at John 7, 46. It says this. The servants answered. The servants. Don't miss that. The servants. The lowly ones. The uneducated ones. They said this. Well, we went and listened to him. And no one ever spoke like this. Oh, the irony to say this to your bosses who are the ones that speak all the time. (laughs) But you can't deny it. They couldn't deny it. We can't deny it. Jesus is just different. The things he has said has changed the world forever. No one has ever spoke like this. I was just at the great Wallingford Worst Festival yesterday, if you've ever been. Great. Uh, St. Benedict's runs it for their school, and uh, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people come to this on the weekend. And I was there, and the irony of it was not lost on me that, you know, probably a a large majority of these people might not even know much about St. Benedict's or or, um, the Catholic Church or anything. They're there for the sausages. (laughs) and the beer, and the carnival games, and it was all great. But then I'm looking up, and this is just what I do, because I look up, Sidera's principle number one, I look up, and I see, just sort of watching over this whole festival, which is in their parking lot, this, you know, probably, you know, 200 feet off of the ground, this cross. It's like, I'm just thinking, I'm like, this is crazy. So the thought I had is, no one ever spoke like this. Who, who must this man have been that people have repeated his words and his teachings and have built buildings and, and put crosses high in the sky to preach about his gospel of forgiveness and love of the Father who sent the Son? Who must this guy be? No one ever spoke like this. And still today, his presence haunts us, even if we're just looking for a fun festival. So if you're prone to the majority rules argument, certain times in, in the history of the West, that'd be on your favor as a, to be a Christian, but that's a bad reason to follow Jesus. <laughs> now, in a city like Seattle, majority rules would say, don't follow Jesus, So whatever part of history you're in, it's a bad argument to say majority rules. The better argument is, what has he said, and no one's ever spoke like this. He seems to know something none of us know. Have you wrestled with that? Okay. And the final, the greatest way, the river of crumbs, you've been waiting for it. So interestingly, Jesus brings this strange thing up that you wouldn't know about unless you were reading in commentaries like me. I didn't understand it at first. It kind of sounds like what he said to the woman at the well, right? Like, I'm the living water. But actually, it's even more profound like that. Do you remember where he said that? Look at verse 37. He says this, On the last day, and the most important day of the festival of tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, 
Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And he said this about the Spirit. John gives us that editorial note. Because Jesus was going to send the Spirit once he died, rose, and ascended. And so John reminds the readers of this. But he said Jesus was actually applying the festival of the tabernacles to himself. Because during the last day of the festival of tabernacles a priest would carry a goblet of water from the pool of Shalom, uh, which is fed by the Gihon Spring, and he'd walk through the water gate into the inner temple court, and he'd bring to the congregation as they sang the great hymn of Isaiah 12.3, you could go look it up, and the priest then would pour the water onto the altar, commemorating the Lord's provision of water in the wilderness, which you can read about in Numbers 20. So in this very climactic moment of the Feast of Tabernacles, the one where typically a priest would have to go walk and bring water and pour it out for the people to remember that God had provided, Jesus stands there and says, I am the water. I'm pouring myself out for you. Anyone who comes and drinks will have streams of living water flowing from them. I'm fulfilling All of the Old Testament, all of the festivals are now fulfilled in me. And John's reminding people of this moment where it was lost on so many, but those who had the eyes of faith could see and believe, oh, Jesus is the living water. And he's going to pour himself out first on the cross, and his blood will flow for forgiveness of sin, and he'll pour out his spirit on us, and we will have these deep waters living within us. And as I read this, I couldn't help thinking about this. Jesus is the tabernacling one, God that came and tented amongst us. He put his tent down on earth to live amongst us. And now he becomes the headwaters of this new living water source, this stream that we can all come to and drink and have life and life to the full. And this stream, this river will last forever. And so my mind went to the other letter that John wrote in Revelation. And what did he say? Throw it up on the screen. Revelation 21.6. Then he said to me. This is a vision that John had of the future in which he saw Jesus speaking. Then they said of me. Jesus said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. And then John talks about the new heavenly city as God remakes heaven and earth. And it says that the city of God was at the center of this new creation, the most beautiful of places. And that there's these tributaries that flow through all of the world and anyone can have life and life forever. And in chapter 22, John writes this, Then he That's the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. And it flows down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life is on either side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there are no longer any curses. And the throne of God and uh, and of the Lamb, Jesus, will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. And so this picture John has is of Jesus as the headwaters that he, that he declared right here in John 7. I am the new headwaters of this living stream, and from me flow life to all the nations. And all God's people who come to me will experience life. That is the promise of God. 
And when he died and he rose and he ascended, he poured out his spirit. This is key. John gives us this note. We can't forget about the editorial note. So that now what happens? The living water that will be in the new heavens and new earth lives in this world. But how and and through who? Through us who have received the gift of eternal life, the gift of the spirit. Now we have the water in us. And so this is what I want to tell. I got to share it. I know, I know, it's been, you know, you've got to have this, okay. Forgive me for time, okay, but you've got to have this. My son Grayson, and I'll pay him $5 for using another illustration. My son Grayson, (laughs) he loves to shower. He loves to soak himself in the water, but he doesn't like drying off. (laughs) And so in our house, you'll just, like, if we're not there when he gets out of the shower to dry him off, what we'll find is he'll just walk through the house and there'll be a trail of water everywhere. And I can't be super mad because it's given me one of my new favorite illustrations, so I've got to go apologize for yelling at him. But, but then what happens is we have a dog. Now you may have heard of him. His name's Moose. And then you'll find Moose licking up the water because <laughs> for some reason he thinks that we're keeping water from him, but he licks it up. And as I, was, as I was thinking about this, I, I was thinking about how this works. In Matthew 15, 21 to 28, we don't have time to read it. There's this very profound thing that happens where Jesus is teaching and a um, Gentile woman comes to him and says, can you heal my daughter? She's sick. And Jesus says a strange thing, and he's setting it up. So it's not that he doesn't love her. He says, well, I came to the house of Israel, not to the Gentiles. And she, and, and, and she says, basically, King Jesus, don't the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off of the king's plate? And Jesus looks at her and says, wow, you have such faith. And this food, and he heals her daughter. If you knew the kind of life, the kind of water that runs deep in you, if you're a person of God, if you've received and asked God and he's given you the spirit, if you knew the trail of water that you left when you just walked through the city, if you knew that people who were hungry and thirsty would come and they would lick up that water, and they would eat the crumbs that fall off, you would do this. You wouldn't need a great argument. You wouldn't be so worried about saying the perfect thing. You wouldn't be so worried about misspeaking or offending. You would just press so deeply into your Father God and the heart of the Son, Jesus, you would know him so well, you would search the scriptures and fill your life with him so that that river in you would just be overflowing so that wherever you went, wherever you walked, when people interacted with you, they might just get a little bit of the leftover and say, where do I get more of that? Like if you knew what was in you, so you don't need to study the best arguments, you don't need to read every book, you don't... I mean, all those things are good, but what you really need is to be filled with the living water so that you provide a trail of crumbs so that people who are hungry for life can come and taste 
and then ask you, where do I get more of that? See that? So like when we leave here, we're going to go out and create tributaries of living water all over the city into our neighborhoods and into our workplaces. And as long as we're filled up and we're allowing God and we're receiving from him everything he wants, we'll just accidentally share the gospel with the world. Life will just flow and, and drip off of our legs. And that's good. Because Jesus is good. And he wants to spread his glory and his goodness to all people. And for some reason, that you've got to ask him when you meet him. Why would you trust me with such a great task? But he said, this is the way it works. So go from this place and soak yourself with the goodness and grace of God so that you can soak this city with the goodness and grace of God. Let's pray.